Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. You may be seated text before us today comes once again from Habakkuk. Today we begin chapter 3. Let's give our attention to the reading of the first two verses of Habakkuk chapter 3, and then we will pick up with Psalm 130 towards the end of the message. Let's give our attention to God's holy word. A prayer, we might say hymn, we might say psalm of Habakkuk, the prophet. According to the Shikinoth, now we have no idea what that means. We think it might mean to some sort of musical way of doing something, some sort of instrumentation. But it's a prayer song, to be prayed, to be sung. Verse 2, O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. For Christ is risen. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. The airports are beginning to fill back up. And if you would think back to before COVID, before the pandemic, if you were ever in an airport, particularly if you were in the, uh, in, in, in the luggage area, the, you know, where you, you pick up your bags afterwards, uh, oftentimes you would see people standing there with signs, and signs with people's names on them, right? And it was typically for that businessman, he's flying and he's got a driver who's come to pick him up. And he's looking for his name, and he sees it, and his driver sees him, and they make the connection. Well, there is a, uh, it's a, it's a meme, and it's a meme that really only literary geeks get. And uh, this is the way it goes. It's just a picture, and it's just a picture of a guy with one of those signs, and he's at the baggage claim, and he's waiting for the person on his sign. The name written on that sign? Godot. G-O. D-O-T. He's waiting for Godot. And you have to be a literary nerd to get it. Waiting for Godot was a famous play, is a famous play by the Irish author Samuel Beckett. And Samuel Beckett wrote this play, and it was a part of the theater of the absurd. And if you've ever read the play or seen the play, you understand why it's a part of the theater of the absurd. It is absurd. But that play was written at the end of World War II. Beckett was in Paris. And Beckett writes that play, and the play's just odd. The play is really just about two or three characters. It really particularly is focusing upon two. 
Two men that are having conversations with one another that don't make necessarily a whole lot of sense. And they're having these conversations as they are what? Waiting for Godot. They're waiting for this character who's supposed to arrive. But guess what? He never arrives. He never shows. Now one interpretation of Samuel Beckett's play, one that he supposedly denied, but knowing Samuel Beckett, his denial meant it's the truth. It's the right interpretation. I'm not a fan of Samuel Beckett. I had to, I had to read this play in 12th grade, and I'm still trying to get over it. But one interpretation of that play is Godot represents God. G-O-D-O-T. And these two men foolishly are waiting for God. And God does what? He never shows up. It was Beckett's way, I think, of saying this belief in a God and you, and you believing in Him and you waiting on Him, that's a fool's errand because there is no such God. He won't, he won't come. He'll leave you waiting because... He doesn't exist. Well, Habakkuk is no Samuel Beckett. Habakkuk is no Samuel Beckett. He has waited for God, and God is no Godot. For God arrives. God comes to Habakkuk. God speaks, and God answers the prayer of the perplexed and prodding prophet. And he answers it graciously, doesn't he? We see that answer in chapter 2. He graciously answers Habakkuk and in such a way that it would lead Habakkuk and it would lead the readers of Habakkuk and the listeners to Habakkuk. It would lead them to humbled and awed silence. Humbled and awed silence. Remember how Chapter 2 ends. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth, not just the Chaldeans, not just those wicked Israelites, let all the earth keep silence before Him. All the earth should be silent before the thrice holy God. For all have sinned and all have fallen, what? Short of the glory of God. We are all guilty before our sovereign, holy God. We are all, as our catechism says, deserving nothing but His wrath and displeasure. And the Christian, like Habakkuk in his day, should not only be silent because he's guilty, he's a sinner, she's a sinner in the sight of a holy God, not only should we be silent because of our guilt, but the Christian, like Habakkuk, should also be silent because we are in awe of what God is doing. We are in awe that our glorious and incomprehensible God will use the evil of men to work His ultimately good and holy purposes out in space and time. What did Habakkuk, I mean, what did God say through Habakkuk and in Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 14? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now dear ones, if if Habakkuk 
obeyed God. And if Habakkuk was silent at the end of chapter 2, silent because he knew himself uh, to be a sinner guilty before the Lord, and silent because God in, in, his, in His wonder and might is going to use all the things that Habakkuk was concerned about for the holy purpose of spreading the knowledge of Yahweh to the world. If Habakkuk obeyed the Lord and was silent, we see in chapter 3 that that silence was broken. But it's broken wonderfully well, isn't it? Now how does that change happen? How do we go from a perplexed prophet turn silent prophet turn to, a, to, to then be a praying and a singing prophet leading his countrymen to join in with him in this prayer, this song, this psalm that we find in chapter 3. What are the steps from silence to song? Well, I think we see them in verse 2. Notice it again. O Lord, Yahweh, I have heard the report of you. Oh, yes, he did. Right? He heard it in chapter 2. The Lord speaks. I've heard the report of you. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. What I think we see happening between the end of chapter 2 and the rest of chapter 3, what I think we see is a silence that leads Habakkuk to focusing upon God and in focusing upon God, that leads Habakkuk to confirm to himself his own guilt and his own sinfulness. And then that focus upon God and upon his own sin leads to a godly, a humble, a faith-filled fear. And then that fear will lead to the prophet crying out and pleading unto God for the reviving work of God and for sweet mercy. Silence, to focus upon God, to focus upon sin, to a faith-filled fear, and then to crying out for pleas for God's reviving work and for mercy. Let's trace that out a bit further. Silence, focus, and fear. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. I've heard the report of you and your work. His focus is upon God. Habakkuk's silence seemed to have given him time and space to focus upon God. Not upon the Chaldeans. No longer upon the Chaldeans. No longer even upon his fellow countrymen. But his focus is now upon Yahweh. Upon the Lord. Now, silence was a mark and an acknowledgement of guilt. And focus upon the holiness of God in that silence, then confirm to the child of God that yes, he was sinful. Yes, he is guilty. It is the sinner that needs mercy, not the one who thinks they're righteous. And what does Habakkuk say at the end of verse 2? In wrath, remember what? Mercy. Mercy. He knows he's a sinner in need of mercy. You see, Habakkuk is like the prophet Isaiah. You remember the call of Isaiah the prophet? You remember it's given that beautiful passage in Isaiah chapter 6. You remember it reads like this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, 
And the train of his robe, that royal train of that royal gown, the train of his robe, swirled and swirled and swirled and filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full. Notice, the whole earth is full of His glory. And when they sing that song, this is what we hear happens next in the vision. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And so, in seeing that vision of the Lord, what does the prophet Isaiah do? Verse 5 of chapter 6 reads, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the true King, the King, the Lord of hosts. He focuses upon God in the vision, and where does that lead him? A recognition of his own sinfulness, right? That happened with Isaiah, it's happening with Habakkuk here. Verse 20, chapter 2, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. And in hearing that, Habakkuk knew his sin. And it led him to what? Fear. Not a slavish fear, but a holy fear. A filial fear. A fear of faith. Holy fear. Verse 2, O Lord, I've heard the report of You and Your work, O Lord. Do I fear? Notice now for the, for the prophet, the distractions of Chaldeans. That's, that's fallen by the wayside. The distractions of his own sinful countrymen. Fallen by the wayside, right? The prophet's focus is upon whom? God. And upon his own sinfulness, no more pointing fingers. No more pointing fingers at those nasty Chaldeans. No more pointing fingers to those hypocritical Israelites. No more pointing fingers. It's the Lord and Habakkuk. And Lord Jones puts it bluntly. The holiness of God and the sin of man are the only things that matter. The holiness of God and the sin of man are the only things that matter. You see, when you don't focus upon God, when you don't have a, a, a conception, a glimpse of His holiness, when you don't focus upon the God of Holy Scripture, guess what you'll do? At least this is what I do. My suspicion is it's what you do. When I'm not focused upon God, I will maximize the sin of others. And I will minimize my own sin. When I'm not focused upon God, my eyes are out there looking and I'm saying, sinner, 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 sinner. And I minimize my own sin. But I get it. Pointing the finger, pointing the finger is natural. 
We don't have to teach our children that. Do we, parents? They'll soon point that finger at somebody else. It's natural. We get it from whom? Our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they fell in the garden, and when God comes after them, what's the, really the first thing they start doing? It was her. It was him. It was it. Right? Pointing fingers is natural. I don't know if you've ever done much counseling, but if you have, one of the saddest things that happens too many times is that in counseling situations, when you're trying to deal with somebody, when you're trying to point out their sin, they respond this way. Yeah, but look at what she did. Look at what he did. Look at what they did. Maximizing the sin of others and what? Minimizing our own. And, and, and so it's natural. It's also something that we're pretty good at in the church. We're pretty good at this. Pointing fingers. Back to Lloyd-Jones. It's thoroughly unbiblical and unspiritual to look only at the obviously godless. And he's, and he's preaching this, get this, right, right at the edge, right at the beginning of the Cold War. He said, Christian people, even leaders, tend to give the impression that there's only one problem, the communists. Let's bring it into our day. Christian people, even leaders, tend to give the impression that there's only one problem. It's the socialists, or it's the nationalists, or it's the sexual revolutionaries, or it's the racists. Or it's Antifa, or it's Proud Boys, or it's the Democrats, or it's Republicans, or it's Hollywood, or it's the media. Everybody likes to jump on the media, rightfully so, right? It's the media, or whatever. Lloyd-Jones says Christians tend to give the impression that there is only one problem. In, in his day, that was communists, the communists. He says, they have fallen into the error into which Habakkuk fell for a while. One hears it said so frequently, well, the church isn't perfect, but look at communists. The church isn't all that she ought to be, but look at that. Look at Hollywood. Look at Washington. Look at Madison Avenue. Look at Wall Street. Whatever may be true of communists or anybody else who is opposed to Christ, Lloyd-Jones says, my first question ought to be this. What about me? What about myself? Dear ones, I want, I want us to get this. Pointing fingers doesn't lead you to faith-filled fear. Pointing fingers enchains you. It binds you. It paralyzes you. It enrages you. Anybody ever have the news on and you get mad? It darkens you. And this is what it's going to do. It's going to lead you away from mercy and grace. 
instead of to it. Instead, Habakkuk's silence gave him the opportunity to focus upon the resplendent holiness and righteousness of Yahweh. And in that silence, it gave him an opportunity to confess his own sin and guilt and stop pointing the fingers at others. And where does that lead him? To a godly fear that calls out unto God. An old Scottish minister writing at the end of the, or right at the beginning of the First World War, you've got his sermon at the back of your bulletin. Preach from this text, and he said, There is an unbelieving, slavish fear that drives many poor sinners away from God, but there is a believing, filial fear that constrains them to draw near to Him with all their difficulties and temptations. Such was the fear of Habakkuk, and such is the fear of all those who truly know the Lord still. Do you know the Lord still? Silence led to focus, led to godly fear. Now let's consider that focus and fear that leads to please. Such a focus, such a filial fear led Habakkuk to trust evermore in Yahweh and to trust Him enough to plead with Him, to cry out to Him, to pray, to pray His petitions. But what are His petitions, dear ones? Notice, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. What is the it? It's the work of God. Now what I want you to notice is, notice what Habakkuk doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray for God to stop the Chaldeans. He doesn't pray that there will be no suffering in Jerusalem. He doesn't pray that Jerusalem not be besieged, that, that it not be sacked, that the temple not be raised. He doesn't pray those things, does he? No. His first petition is not about Jerusalem, it's not about the Israelites, it's not about himself. His first petition is about God. It's about the Lord. It's about the Lord's work. Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it, your work. In the midst of the years, make it known. And what was that work? That work was uh, chastening His people, Israel. That work was disciplining His people, Israel. That work would be the judgment that would fall upon the Chaldeans. And that work through all that would be the spread of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord to all the nations as the waters cover the sea. O Lord, O Yahweh, may that work be kept alive and may it be known. May your glory, may your work be known. Isn't that how Jesus teaches us to pray? Think about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be 
Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are the first petitions that come out of your mouth when you pray? Are they petitions about the Lord's glory, the Lord's name, and the Lord's work? What is it that chiefly worries you as a Christian? Is it some event that's going on out there in the world? Or is it the name and the glory of Almighty God? Are you more concerned about what's going on on the political stage? Or in the entertainment world? Or in world diplomacy? Or in economics? Are you, are you more concerned about that than the health and condition of the church? And the prosperity and the future, the cause of God among men? For Habakkuk, the first concern was what? God. God. In spite of what he knew was going to happen, he prayed for the reviving of God's cause in Israel. Lord John says the message of this book is that until we truly humble ourselves, forgetting other people and those that are worse than we are, until we see ourselves as we are in the sight of God and confess our sins and commit ourselves into His almighty hands, we have no right to look for peace or happiness. No right. The old Puritan Thomas Watson puts it beautifully. Until sin be bitter, Christ won't be sweet. Until your sin is bitter to you, to the point you cry out to God for mercy, you will not see the sweetness of Christ. But when the problem of evil out there turns into the problem of evil in here, it is then that a believer's silence can turn to song, can turn to pleas, and pleas that include the plea for mercy. In the midst of the years, that is, between this, this, this eve of the Chaldeans sacking us, and that day when you, O Lord, will pour forth your judgment on the Chaldeans. In the midst of the years, revive your work, O Lord. In the midst of the years, make your work known. In wrath, remember mercy. Mercy. Not receiving what Habakkuk deserved. Not receiving, dear ones, what you deserve. What I deserve. Mercy. Yes, God's judgment is going to fall upon the Chaldeans, but until then, what should we be crying out? Mercy. Mercy, Lord. Mercy. Pour forth your mercy upon us. Habakkuk pleads for mercy, and he's going to teach the Israelites to do the same. He's going to teach them to sing his song. There's another psalm we can sing. It's Psalm 130. 
It's there in your bulletins as well. It's what we've already been singing. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be what? Feared. I what? Wait for Godot? No, I wait for God. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His Word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen in the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all of His iniquities. Are there sins in others in this world that we could point to? Sure. Right? But parents, what do you teach your children about pointing? When you point at that one finger, what? You got how many? Three pointing back at you, right? Will you wait for mercy? Will you sing for mercy? Will you sing of the mercies of God? Or will you go on pointing fingers? The choice is ours. Let's pray. Oh, gracious, merciful Lord, pour forth your mercy and your grace that we might cry out to you, seeking more. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.